Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, the fallout from the Metropolitan Police's disastrous mishandling of the Sarah Everard vigil at the weekend continues to descend. How badly are these events affecting women's trust in the police? What needs to happen next? And what will it all mean for the government's flagship police crime sentencing and courts bill? A shockingly hardline piece of legislation that could render even peaceful protest extremely difficult to carry out. Plus... You probably don't know enough about what's happening in Scotland. I certainly don't. Special guest Alex Massey, writer for The Times and The Sunday Times and Scotland editor of The Spectator, is here to fill us in on independence, how the SNP is really doing, and yet more fallout, this time from Sturgeon Salmond. All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. Just a reminder that if you're a Patreon backer, our very first solo live Zoom is coming up on Thursday, the 25th of March at 8pm. I'm going to be joined by regulars Ahir Shah, Yasmin Saran and Arthur Snell, plus our man on the unofficial US politics desk, Brian Class, for a full evening of grief, misery and political doomsaying. It's free and exclusive to Patreon backers, so search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up. Now let's say hello to today's panel. First up, hello to Times Radio host, card-carrying Scott and former New Labour spad, Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello. Also joining us, we have the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Sohan. Hi there. And hello to special guest, Alex Massey, the Scotland editor of The Spectator, columnist for The Times and Sunday Times. Welcome to The Bunker, Alex. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. Ordinarily, we usually start the show sort of chatting about a couple of random political stories, but the events of the past week sort of make that all seem a little beside the point. The really distressing disappearance of Sarah Everard and then the, uh, well, the charging of a Metropolitan Police officer for her murder has sent waves of revulsion through the country. The Met's heavy-handed and tactless response to the Reclaim These Streets vigil horrified observers across the board um, from women's safety campaigners right through to the Daily Mail. Aisha, we were kind of tweeting off the cuff over the weekend that the Met has managed to radicalise the generation of young women kind of in one go. What, what, what was your reaction to Saturday's events? Well, I mean, the whole week has been absolutely, you know, horrible. You know, it was the week of International Women's Day. It's normally a time where we sort of celebrate the the achievements of women and the, the progress of women. And here we are mourning um, a woman who was abducted and killed. Um, and then this um, vigil sort of descended into, you know, really, really unruly scenes. Look, I think there are very, very big questions about the how the Met handled it. But for me, as somebody who has spent, you know, a huge part of my life, de- you know, dealing with these issues, I was a special advisor on women and equality issues, drafted the Equality Act. I don't want this to turn into sort of a political ding-dong about Cressida Dick. Cressida Dick is not, she's not the beginning of this problem. She's not the solution to this problem. This is about really deep, embedded, systemic, structural problems that fail women. We have a situation where rape has practically been decriminalised in this country because prosecution rates are so low. We know that um, prosecutions are absolutely woeful when it comes to domestic violence um, and domestic homicide as well. And I think one of the things that was interesting about Saturday night was, yes, it was a vigil, but it was also a protest. It was a vigil, you know, honouring Sarah Everard, but it was a protest thinking about all the other women who have also been killed by men. And what's kind of so sort of, I suppose, depressing now is, of course, there is this messy backlash that's beginning, as as always happens, and people are kind of going, oh, well, you know, not all men, and, and it was a very rare occurrence that this happens. Well, it's actually, okay, we understand it's not all men, but it is some men, and also 
every woman has got a story about this. This 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 thing sent a shiver down the spines of of women of all ages, backgrounds, you know, parts of the 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 country, and we're just fed up. Like I think women are kind of frightened. It's triggered a lot of memories for women that we've sort of you know, hidden away. And we're just fed up with the system, absolutely fed up with the system, which just clearly we have the criminal justice system. And yes, the police are part of that. But we have an overall criminal justice system. And actually, let's be honest, a political system that just like doesn't really listen to women. It would have been hard to devise a worse look, though, for the end of the week than to see young women being tossed around, pinned down, manhandled by the Metropolitan Police. When a Met officer has been charged for this murder. I mean, we've seen in the past, we've seen major trigger moments for big worldwide movements. We've saw, we've seen it with Me Too. We've seen it with Black Lives Matter. Do you think this could be one of them? Well, yes and no. I mean, we have these big moments all the time because, you know, we big everything up on social media. But I'm going to be really honest. I don't think much has changed after the Me Too movement. A lot of hashtags, a lot of outpouring on social media, a lot of award ceremonies kind of, you know, but actually, if you ask most women, do you really, really think that much has changed? The answer will be no. So I hope this can be a moment of change. But I just like so many women just feel quite weary and quite cynical and depressed right now. Yasmin, this is one of those moments that, you know, hundreds of people, probably thousands of people experienced firsthand on Clapton Comma, but many, many more experienced it across Twitter, across social media. And the reaction from, you know, right from the political left to the kind of, to the right, really, to the to the libertarian right almost, would united in kind of horror at what the Met did. This was a peaceful vigil uh, occurring in London. There were peaceful vigils occurring elsewhere in the country. Firstly, what, you know, why did this one go so wrong, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was actually really extraordinary to see my Twitter feed for perhaps the first time seemingly aligned on one issue. But um, I think a big part of the problem stems from the fact, and, and you know, I think we've heard a lot of people talk about this, the Metropolitan Police's failure to coordinate with the organizers of the vigil to ensure that the event could go ahead in a safe and COVID compliant way. Um, and, you know, we know this is possible. I was just looking back to um, a, a story I did almost this time last year that was looking at protests in Israel and Rabin Square, where you had protesters, you know, with the, with the police there having coordinated, wearing masks, spaced out, you know, who were able to, to, you know, take up their right to protest, but to do so in a safe way. And everything we know about outdoor transmission tells us that, you know, the, the risk of transmission is quite low outside. So it, it strikes me as pretty nonsensical that this event couldn't have gone ahead if they, you know, say had capped the numbers, mandated mask wearing, encouraged those in attendance to, you know, kind of give each other a bit of space. Um, so I, I think t- to me, you know, it, I think that's kind of perhaps not the only problem, but I would imagine a big part of the problem, a part of the reason where we could look to other parts of the country where this didn't happen um, compared to to what happened in Clapham Common. And I do get that, you know, Clapham is obviously more sensitive because that's where it happened and is probably, you know, the epicenter of all this. But um, it it just seems to me that, you know, this has kind of prompted a big question about why wasn't a peaceful vigil, even if it did kind of turn protest-like in the later bits, why wasn't it allowed to go ahead? And, and, you know, what could they have done to make sure that it could do so safely? And there was an opportunity after the the, the High Court case at the end of the week, there was an opportunity for the Met to enter into dialogue with the people organising, the women organising the vigil, you know, to, to come to an understanding. And it seems... A, bizarre that they couldn't and wouldn't, and B, we still don't quite know where the where the book stops here. 
Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer have both said that Cressida Dick shouldn't resign. She was just saying it's not about Cressida Dick, really. And yet both, you know, Johnson and Starmer have said that um, that they oppose what the police did on, on, on Clapham Common. Is this particular episode going to be dealt with without a resignation? I mean, is, unless, unless is, there is some kind of clear penance scene, is it going to fester, do you think? I mean, I, I agree with Aisha that I think this is more than just one person. Um, and, you know, obviously, I don't think Cressida Dick resigning um, addresses all, all of the issues just with regard to policing and this sort of thing in general. Um, but, you know, I if there were a strong outcry and a call across the country for a resignation than perhaps, but I haven't really seen that. Indeed, I, I saw YouGov polling. So, I mean, granted, this is just one poll, but according to one YouGov poll, it showed that um, the public, or at least those surveyed, didn't think that Cressida Dick should resign and that um, a narrow majority opposed the, the vigil happening, happening um, given the pandemic. So I, I don't necessarily kn- think that you know that there's enough anger out there to to see that sort of thing happen and there's a lot of um, anecdotal stuff coming back from women who are at the process saying that such trouble as there was was coming on the fringes of the vigil many of them from the kind of people you tend to see turning up at protests and attempting to piggyback on them there were you know and, and, and a lot of men you know, anti-maskers and all your all of your favourite kind of rentacles on the fringes of the of the vigil, which doesn't in any way justify what happened on the bandstand. I mean, I think what a lot of people found so particularly upsetting was the fact that the police went through the the flowers and the tributes and and, and trampled on them to 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 the sense of the bandstand. Aisha, I mean, there is a kind of a, a battle on the go about where the blame lands for this, and you know, certain. Conservative commentators have been trying to pin the blame on Sadiq Khan. Other protesters have been, other uh, voices rather, have just been, as we've heard, uh, pointed it towards the Home Secretary. Christopher Dick does have a direct mandate from, from Priti Patel. I mean, so who is responsible here? Well, there's a couple of things. I think we should not kid ourselves. A lot of forces who are no friend of the women's movement and the women's cause are suddenly jumping on this because they have another you know, ulterior motive, you know, lots of people are speaking up about this because they're angry about the COVID restrictions. Like a lot of women are a bit angry that this has been weaponized by kind of other groups. Like we do, you know, a lot of people don't want the murder of this woman to be now turned into a, haha, this is a gotcha moment to sort of let's get COVID restrictions like eased earlier because there's a lot of people who've got that ax to grind. So I think we've just got to be really mindful of that. In terms of um, who Cressida Dick is responsible to, I started life off on the police desk at the Home Office many, 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 many years ago. Lord McPherson was looking into how the Metropolitan Police handled the murder inquiry of Stephen Lawrence. And it's really important to, to make the point that politicians must have no operational interference with the police. That's a really, really important separation of, of powers. So... Pretty Patel, I would not want Pretty Patel anywhere near this. Pretty Patel was not, um, and I don't think she would have been directing Cressida Dick. That is an important separation of powers, and I think it's really, really important to, to sort of state that. Operational decisions will be down to the com- commissioners of the different um, constabularies. Now, the you know Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabularies will now, like I think, look into this. But I think what's interesting is that I don't think this is this is pretty, pretty. I mean, I'm no fan of Pretty Patel, but I don't think this is Pretty Patel's fault. I don't think this is Sadiq Khan's fault. I don't actually think this is Boris Johnson's fault. I definitely don't think this is Keir Starmer's fault. This is, you know, this is a very, very uh, 
difficult situation. I think the police definitely mishandled it. But the truth is, there's always going to be a bit of trouble at these things. I have a friend who was at it and posted that actually there were a lot of men there agitating that, and the police should have done something about that because it, it it was it was frightening it was disrespectful they didn't want it to turn into that kind of thing so you know there there are this definitely got messy around the the edges but i probably just go back to my kind of central point that i started with you know the criminal justice system is excuse my language is just so fucked when it comes to dealing with violence against women you know we've just got this policing bill that's going through today where, you know, you'll get 10 years for vandalising a statue, whereas a couple of weeks ago, a man murdered his wife in lockdown and only got five years for it because lockdown and his sort of, you know, his depression around lockdown was considered a really, really important factor. We just heard the other day that, you know, a man was spared a custodial sentence for, you know, sexual harassment and because it was it, he was worried he might lose his his job you know there are so you know i genuinely at this stage i don't really care like you know who's who has to resign over this you know there's a coalition um called end violence against women they just lost their case in the high court about challenging the crime prosecution service about why so few rape cases get picked up you know there are so many structural issues and i think it's it becomes too easy for us to just turn it into a right are we going to which scalp are we going to get yeah. and it avoids that bigger conversation about these really really huge deep complex issues that need to be fixed we're going to talk about the police crime sentencing and courts bill in a minute but yasmin just before we move on i mean there's a there's a hugely delicate part of this whole sarah everard thing and the the kind of outpouring of grief and anger about it Many black women, uh, many uh, campaigners have said, you know, this welcome to reality. This is what policing is like. It's it's a wake up call. People in minorities experience this kind of the things that happen at the weekend all the time. Is it also a question that perhaps the Sarah Everard case has gathered such great attention because she's a white professional woman? She's, um, you know, she did, um, she did everything right, as they say, and in, you know, not in any way to detract from the seriousness of the the crime, but campaigners have said, you know, when it's a black woman or it's a woman with a more troubled background from a minority or a poorer background, the world just cares less. The world pays less attention. Is this going to draw attention to that and make us think about it more? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that that point is a very good one. And it's one that I've seen amplified a bit online. Um, quite a lot of people actually were citing this one case of a young black woman who um, whose body was found on a beach in Sussex last year. And, and that case, is, as far as I'm aware, remains unresolved. So I, I think there's definitely kind of an, an element that should be addressed about, you know, obviously, this does not diminish, though, you know, Sarah, that what happened to Sarah Everard, I, I think, as you rightly note, what has made this, I think there are many factors that have made this particular case a national conversation. But one of them, as you just said, is that I think a lot of women could look at Sarah Everard and see themselves in in her, um, like myself included. I mean, you know, she's a young woman, professional, walking through her city, taking every precaution and still, and that not being enough. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, certainly. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's probably some you know, I th- I think that that is an issue, and and you know, if anything, would I, w- I would hope that this case would prompt us to look out for more cases like that and be like, you know, we need to talk about 
the frequency with with which this happens, irrespective of who they are and their background. That these are these are women who who can't feel safe in in their own cities and towns, um, and we need to do something about that. Alex, by a stunning legislative coincidence, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill had its second reading in the Commons today. It includes a lot of powers about protest, uh, including powers for police to cancel them due to impact and noise, and even to classify lone individuals as as protests. What kind of light do you think the weekend's event's going to cast on this? Because the, the bill has already had quite a strong pushback. Yes, I mean, as you say, it is purely a coincidence that these uh, different uh, strands of the of, of the news rope, if you like, have have come together at this point in time. But nevertheless, it it seems or feels fairly appropriate uh, that they that they have done so. Uh, I mean, I think this is a bad and illiberal bill, um, and you know, if I were an MP, I would I would certainly vote against it. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's one of these things that, again, I'm afraid, is likely to prove vastly more popular with the general public than it is with, uh, you know, in, in, than you might like to think, you know, and again, people are extremely inconstant uh, when it comes to evaluating these things. For So for, for instance, you know, people tend to be very, very keen on, pro- on cracking down on protests with which they disapprove and very bad uh, at holding uh, a sort of kind of universal standard for, for these things. So for instance, you will have plenty of people who are appalled by this bill, but would nevertheless like to see police have greater powers to crack down on, say, for example, protests outside uh, abortion clinics or, or that sort of sort of thing. So, you know, very few people are actually entirely consistent about these matters. Um, you know, there are plenty of other examples one could have used to illustrate that, but that is one, I think, where where you do have, you know, a lot of campaigners actually calling for there to be greater restrictions placed on people's ability to to, to protest in, in those uh, situations. And, and there are, you know, perfectly uh, viable, plausible reasons for supporting those um, exclusions, if you like, but at the same time, there is, you know, there are strong and plausible reasons for, for uh, opposing those demands as well. Uh, you know, I think that the the other broader context for this, obviously, is the dramatic expansion of the state's authority over the last 12 months uh, as a result of the pandemic and so on. And the, the state is now intruded into areas of, of life that, that previously would have been all but unthinkable for it to do so, particularly outside of, you know, a major war. And, and that is something to which we've sort of become quite accustomed. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have almost sort of internalized all of this. And I think that it's perfectly normal for the state to be involved in in all of these areas. And I'm not sure that it will actually prove to be quite as easy as many people might like to hope it would to to persuade the state to retreat from a lot of this invasion after, uh, as and when, hopefully, we we emerge on the other side of all of this. And I think that is something of of genuine and and real concern. Because, you know, it's one of these situations where, you know, verify the state's authority, then trust the authority's ability to, you know, work within uh, the parameters they've they've been set. So uh, power granted and so on is not often power that is voluntarily or easily relinquished. And, and that, I think, is a rather longer term problem that, that goes rather beyond the scope of this immediate police bill, which, as I say, is draconian and illiberal and a, a thoroughly unpleasant piece of work, but nevertheless is not the whole story. Yeah, I mean, as you say, uh, these things are often more popular with the general public than they are with the, the, the kind of people who listen to podcasts, for instance. But it's they're also popular with the kind of people who don't go on protests at all. They don't tend not to take part in this. And what, what we've seen 
we saw it during the, the the Brexit thing, and we've seen it now, is that the kind of people who didn't usually go to protests are actually going to these protests. For many of them, it's their it's their first protest. It's their it's their first dipping their toe into into the world of going out onto the street with, with a placard. And for many, I mean, for many people, it's a, it's it's a rude awakening. You find that your interaction with the police is maybe not the one that that you're used to. And the fact that this particular episode cuts right across the political spectrum from left to right, do you think? I mean, as as you said, it's pretty much the worst time to launch a bill like this after after a weekend like we've just had. Do you think that might shape its passage, perhaps? That you know, the kind of people who would ordinarily give a hardline Home Secretary pretty much carte blanche might look at what happened at the weekend and see people like their own daughters being thrown around like bags of flour and think again. Well, no, not really. I mean, the government does have an 80-seat majority. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think this is, you know, something that people sometimes forget about after the weakness of the of Theresa May's years and so on, you know, is, is that, you know, the, the government can can pass whatever legislation it, it wishes at present, subject, obviously, to amendment in, in the House of Lords. And, you know, in general, a lot of things are always sort of claimed to, to if you like, radicalise apolitical people. And yet apolitical people remain stubbornly unradicalised. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm unconvinced, shall we say, um, and maybe Ayesha and, and, and uh, Yasmin disagree with me on this, but I'm unconvinced, actually, that this weekend's events in Clapham will have a prolonged or significant impact on the news agenda or indeed on the political agenda, um, let alone actually lead to any dramatic changes in, or shifts in, in, in policy or even necessarily perhaps in culture. Politics in Scotland have seldom been as consequent for the rest of the UK as they are right now. They could determine not just the future existence of the UK, but a future England's place alongside an expanded EU as well. And if you're English like me, you absorb all of it, either through the odd newspaper report or some of the most partisan social media conversation to be found anywhere. What is going on in Scotland? What's the upshot of the confrontation between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond over the inquiry into the Scottish government's handling of the sexual harassment allegations made against Salmond? And apart from the drive for another independence referendum, how is the SNP doing as a government? Alex Massey is here to explain it all, and Aisha is going to argue with him. Alex, if I had to ask you, what is the biggest misconception amongst the English about Scotland and Scottish politics? What would you say? Take as long as you like. <laughs> um, but, uh, the, the biggest misconception uh, in England about Scottish politics, I think, is this notion that has developed over the last 20 years since the advent of legislative devolution and so on, that Scotland is already actually some kind of semi-detached quasi-foreign entity um, uh, that, that people sort of look at and peer uh, and wonder what, what the hell's going on up there. Um, you know, it's it's viewed as being not that different from, say, the Republic of Ireland sometimes, as far as a lot of people in London are concerned. At least that's how it seems to seems to me. And, and that, therefore, leads to a lot of failing to pay attention. And so you have a, these sort of wild swings in analysis coming out of London in particular about Scottish politics. The, um, so, for instance, in 2014, there was a view that there was absolutely no prospect whatsoever that the Yes campaign could win the independence referendum. And so therefore, it wasn't something really worth thinking about, let alone engaging with. Now, that was always, you know, complacent and deluded, um, because it struck me and many others that it was always probable that the pro-independence uh, side in that campaign would win at least 40% of the vote. And 40% of the vote was all that was required to keep the issue alive. 
Fast forward half dozen years, post-Brexit, which is a big hinge moment, obviously, because it brings the national question, the constitutional question, right back to the heart of Scottish politics. It gives Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP licence to revive the national question, even though only a handful of years have passed since the issue was notionally decided. But you fast forward to the end of 2020, um, and you have Boris Johnson in Prime Minister. Brilliant news for the SNP. Um, you have the pandemic. Uh, pretty good news for the SNP um, in terms of, you know, the UK government's handling of the, the COVID uh, emergency. And you have Brexit as the, if you like, the, the backdrop and the stage upon which all else is, is being played out. All of these things, you know, combine and you get a couple of dozen opinion polls in a row, which show support for independence between 50 and 56%. Um, and then suddenly in, in, in London, every Everybody massively overreacts to this all over again. And they start assuming that, well, independence is inevitable. It's bound to happen. The, you know, the breakup of Britain is upon us. Well, people have been forecasting the breakup of Britain for, for more than half a century. And yet stubbornly, just about, however ramshackle fashion, um, it still just about hangs together. So there's this sort of failure to pay the proper amount of attention. I'm not suggesting that people in, in London or elsewhere in England and so on have to be following the granular detail of Scottish politics on a, on a daily or even weekly basis. But a failure to pay the, the appropriate amount of attention leads to, on the one hand, excessive complacency and ignorance, um, and then on the other hand, ex- ex- excessive sort of doom and gloom. Um, uh, and that means you sort of zig from one, zigzag from one to the other and so on, and end up in a terrible muddle, frankly. Just as independence was, if you like, underpriced in 2014, so unionism is now underpriced in 2021. Um, that is, uh, you know, I would say is the, the sort of fundamental uh, of the situation just now. But Aisha may disagree. Aisha, do you disagree? Um I suppose I mean what Alex says is correct but I think that is a it's a that is a it's a legitimate criticism and it's a wider criticism of the media which is which let's be quite honest you know often doesn't you know take the time to really understand things and kind of does see things in in quite kind of cartoon um ways I mean I suppose the the fact that you know the chances of Scotland leaving are, are very slim I mean that is what everybody said about us leaving the EU I mean, when we had the Brexit referendum, I mean, even on the night of the um, referendum result, this is the Brexit referendum, I was in the, you know, the the basement of ITN with, you know, all every leading, you know, London-based sort of journalist and everybody was getting slaughtered and having a great time because every, you know, very brilliant, brilliant commentator, people who I really looked up to said, you know, have a good time because we're going to be home by like the results are going to come in about half 11. We'll be away at midnight. There's no way we're leaving the EU. And then we all know what what happened. So I just think that, I mean, Alex is right in the sense that, you know, the fact that there have been, uh, you know, consistent number of polls has definitely contributed to this sense of of momentum that independence is is on the march. But then you can't, and, and you know that you know there've been a couple of polls that have have shown you know that that is kind of slightly that support is kind of ebbing. It's not massively dropped, but it's kind of leveling off. I just think it's very difficult to ignore the fact that the SNP have done really, really well over the last couple of years. 
that people are not necessarily are not really voting for the SNP because they really love their education policy or they love their health policy. They don't, these people probably even know what their policy is on, let's say, policing or something like that. They have created something which is quite unusual because they have forged a political project with a cultural project as well. So a lot of people who I know who were unionists but who are now kind of pro-independence, they don't see themselves as being aligned to a, a political party. They see themselves as being aligned to something much bigger, which is very much steeped in culture as well in, in Scotland. So there's a strong emotional argument for all of that stuff. And I think one of the things that, the, the, the I mean, this is true of the Remain campaign, it, it's true of the, the unionist campaign as well. You know, we're very, very good at making absolutely correct economic um asking these really important economic questions and practical questions. What will the border at Berwick look like? What is going to happen to public spending? Because if you do want to join the EU, you have to get your deficit down. Where are you going to make those public spending cuts? Scotland enjoys very high public spending. You know, what's going to happen to to pensions? You know, what's happening with the oil revenue? These are absolutely legitimate questions. But one of the things that we know from politics of late is that sort of evidence is not often the thing that swings elections emotions are. And, you know, the unionist campaign never really came up with a great... Um, I remember having dinner with Alistair Darling just in the middle of all the, you know, the just as it was as a run-up to the, the Scottish independence. And this waitress in, in the restaurant said to us, so, you know, yeah, I recognise you off the telly. You're leading... Just in, just in one really easy sentence, tell me why Scotland should stay in, in Britain because all my pals are wanting to leave and... And Alistair, bless him, really flummoxed. And this girl was only about 18 and went, because of your pension. It was just like, no, <laughs> just not helping. Anything. Speaking the language of 18-year-olds around the world, right? yes. <laughs> God. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, that's all abs- absolutely true. Um, you know, the SNP um, uh, is, uh, in its own view, and it's a view accepted by plenty of voters, is essentially the sort of uh, the, the political expression of the will of the Scottish people. That's how they... they they view it. It's the articulation of a particular kind of Scottishness. And the appeal of independence and so on is less about the, the detail of the prospectus of life after independence. The case for independence has been made much more effectively in London than it has been in Edinburgh. Uh, and this isn't just my view or in the view of other you know, colonists and pundits and so on. You know, it's the view of Douglas Ross, the new leader of the Scottish Conservatives as well. You know, and he accepts you know, that the Prime Minister is a massive problem for unionism. You know, it, you know, he, it is not safe to send him to Scotland, basically. There's also another problem that you see in parts of the media, particularly the, if you like, the sort of left-wing progressive or self-styled progressive uh, media in London, so on, where you find some, you know, quite a number of diehard Remainers, if you like, who now start saying, well, you know, if I was Scottish, I'd be all in favour of independence too. And they're not really making the argument on the merits or the demerits of the of, of independence and so on, but as a way of, if, if, if you like, of, of scolding and, and owning the Conservative and Unionist Party. And so, you know, if it weren't for Brexit, so, you know, the, uh, Scottish independence and the breakup of Britain is something that you deserve because you've um, thrust this uh, uh, Brexit, the de- disaster of Brexit upon us and so on. So it's a, it's a sort of way of owning the Tories and so on. And I find that um, a very vexing um, and frustrating sentiment. So, and one does come across it quite often in The Guardian and The Independent and various other disreputable uh, newspapers. <laughs> um, uh, you, know, you know, because it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't pay any attention to, to what is actually quite good, you know, what would be best for the people of Scotland and so on. You know, they, are, they, are, they lack their 
you know, lack agency in this. But uh, uh, Although, can, I just, can I just come back on that? On that, Romina, I suppose, we're also told to learn a very powerful lesson from Brexit, which was listen to people. They're allowed to do what they want, even though you think it wouldn't be very good for them economically. They are allowed to vote to be poorer if they want to. So I suppose sticking up for some of those people, I mean, I do see what you're, I kind of see the argument you're making, but I mean, the idea that the left gets anywhere nearing the owning the Tories right now is just sort of, you know, like kind of laughable. But surely one of the reasons why a lot of Romanians are saying, actually, well, if that's the will of the people, is that is because that's the lesson they were told to learn from Brexit. No, I don't, I don't think I don't think it's anything to do with that at all, really. I think it's, um, you know, with respect, so, you know, the arguments for independence are exactly the same as the arguments for Brexit. Um, you know, Brexiteers hate it when this is pointed out, and the, and the Nats, Scottish nationalists and so on, really hate it when it's uh, when it's pointed out to them that as a matter of rhetoric, you know, their slogan is essentially take back control. You know, it, it is an argument about democracy as far as they're concerned and, and democratic accountability. It's not necessarily one that is purely about identity, although there is clearly a huge identity component to it, but it is always Massive. presented. It is always presented somewhat fraudulently, in my view, but still, it's always presented as as a sort of almost as a, a sort of cost benefit analysis and so on. And the co- and the and the case for independence. It, well, it just makes sense. You see, it would be better for us, and it would be better for England too. It would actually be an extremely expensive business, particularly for us, and and uh, and actually an expensive business for for the rest of the UK too, in terms of its conception of itself, because. You know, Scotland is the is the indispensable part of the United Kingdom um, because it is the only part that that is central to the United Kingdom's creation that can leave it. You know, people in England, I think, um, underappreciate exactly what would be lost if the UK were to break up. And you know, if there is a second referendum and so on, you know, then which there won't be immediate in the in the short term, but at some point in the future, it is quite likely that the question will have to be put again. But just just to come back on that, I genuinely do not think that a lot of people in Scotland who are really, really passionate about independence think of it as a sort of, you know, cost uh, and benefit analysis. No, but Nicola Sturgeon always sells it in those terms. Yeah, but I mean, but most people are not going to plough through the, the documents. The thing that drives independence and the thing that has absolutely boosted this this support for independence it is emotion. It's a it's a grievance against Brexit. It's a grievance against Westminster, and it's a grievance against um, Boris Johnson. Just by the way, in the same way that Brexit was not driven by really smart economics either. Brexit was driven by a grievance against immigrants. You know, a grievance against sort of you know the woke and you know progressive politics and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, these are things which are very emotive and they are they are powerful drivers. And you are right. There is an absolute like consistency between the Brexiteers and um, the SNP on this. The thing which is very, very difficult to navigate, though, is it's the what looks like the hypocrisy of Boris Johnson, who absolutely is, you know, was the man, he was the genius behind Brexit. He is the thing that turbocharged the successful Brexit campaign. He did it on the back of democracy. He did it on the back of big, strong feelings, not a huge amount of evidence, big feelings. That is a big, powerful drive of people in Scotland saying, well, hang on a minute, what's good for the goose should be good for the gander, surely. 
Well, yeah, but I mean, and, and that is obviously certainly what the SNP are counting on, that, that the, 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 the UK government's disinclination to grant them the second independence referendum will persuade a whole load of Scots who don't currently want a referendum that actually they do want it. Uh, it it's the sort of thing that, that, you know, we don't want something until we're told we can't have it now, so that, you know, we will, we will have a tantrum and demand it, um, even though we don't want it. Opinion polls are quite clear that in the long term, I think this is, you know, clearly, you know, the refusal to to accede to referendum demand is a time limited strategy. You know, it's subject to the laws of diminishing returns as time goes by, but there is enough juice in it still for it to work. Um, and actually, here, actually, the the pandemic comes to the prime minister's aid because you know the the SNP will tell their own supporters that you know an SNP victory in in May's election opens the door to an independence referendum this year or next. But actually, voters do not think that it would be appropriate to have uh, such a referendum until you know the the, the covid covid and its in its aftermath have been successfully navigated so so curiously the pandemic actually buys the prime minister maybe another year 18 months of time but uh, at a certain point, just saying no becomes a problem yeah. if, you know, instead of, you know, you could say no if only half the country wants a, wants a referendum. It becomes very much more difficult to, to say no if, you know, 65, 70% of people say that they want a referendum. And, you know, that's the problem. And, but until, until, until the numbers get to that point, I think you can just say no, because it's very difficult to see how the SNP get around that um, in the short term. But it's a short-term survival strategy, not a long-term answer. Alex, I want to ask you a couple of things about Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, firstly, she's often seen as a bit of a hero by liberals like us in England. You know, she's firm but fair on COVID, pro-European, very effective. Not Boris Johnson, always a big bonus. We tend, we tend not to think about how Scotland is being governed, how effective it is, because we often don't read about it. Are we right to think that of her? And can you also, as a little sidebar to that, can you unpack the salmon sturgeon case for us, which was <laughs> Byzantine and complicated? And if you're English, it's like the hell is going on here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when the first, you know, look, Nicola Sturgeon um, is a masterful political communicator, uh, but her ministry's handling even of, of COVID and so on has been stronger on the sort of mood music and communicate clarity of communication than it has been on results. You know, the first lockdown in March, you know, Scotland is at an earlier point on the curve of, of, of coronavirus infections. There's less of the virus in Scotland when you when it went into lockdown uh, a year ago, and that then has a as a sort of impact that that endures throughout the next 12 months, which is one reason why there are slightly fewer deaths in, in Scotland than in England. And there are various other matters of, you know, uh, geography, demographics, et cetera, et cetera, which help explain why infection rates haven't been quite as high in Scotland as elsewhere, but they still have been pretty bad. You know, you know, Scotland has not actually done well, but Scotland likes to think it has done well because the only thing that really matters, and this is one of the things where the SNP get a great assistance from the UK government, is that it doesn't really matter if Scotland does worse than lots of foreign countries. So long as we do a little bit better than England, um, uh, you know, everything's I mean, football. Then everything's yeah, football. Yeah, yeah, and, and England are hopeless. Um, you know, which is in this instance, you know, quite agreeable. You know, you, you know, it's it's what George W. Bush in a different context once called the soft bigotry of low expectation. You know, uh, everyone should be able to do better than the English. Doing so doesn't actually mean you've done well. 
but you know that that is the sort of frame of reference within which um, Scottish politics operates. And so, you know, if, if you're if you're two percent better than than in England, brilliant job done. Two percent worse, crisis um, with nothing in between. And so, the, the the SNP have managed to take advantage of that sentiment, if you like. And and you know, one of the things that people in Scotland really like is being Scottish. And so, therefore, the the party um, that is, if you like fully Scottish and so on actually has a, in this day and age a significant advantage and again Nicola Sturgeon manages to play that very well but you know if you look at her record in government and so on particularly if you look at it from if you like a, a progressive or left-wing perspective and so on it, it, it is not particularly brilliant you know if you look at the health service you know 80% of treatment and other targets in the NHS have been missed every year for the last four or five years some haven't been met in a decade if you look at education you know, once upon a time, people in Scotland rather complacently like to boast that the Scottish education system was vastly better than than that um, uh, than, than the English system. Well, you know, you can no longer make that boast. Um, there is now finally an acceptance that Scottish education is okay, but not particularly brilliant, and that actually it fails people at the top end of academic ability and at the bottom in various other areas. You know, the SNP's record in government is not particularly brilliant. But again, you have to look at the alternatives. You know, who are they up against? Well, the, you know, neither the Conservatives nor the Labour Party even pretend that they're in a position to form a government after May's elections. So, you know, in that sense, you know, it's it's like, uh, you know, the scale of the SNP's victories, while very impressive and so on, it has to be, you know, the competition level has to be borne in mind. On the question of sturgeon Salmond, well, I mean, this goes back long, many, many years. <laughs> Where do you want to begin? Um, the the key thing about it <laughs> is that it has had, it appears to have had a bit of an effect in um, the opinion polls in terms of May's election, that the SNP, which looked extremely likely to win a majority of seats in, in May, now that that prospect is perhaps down to about 50-50. So either way, a thumping landslide victory. Um, but the, there are, you know, a decent proportion of voters who are turned off by the Salmon Sturgeon thing. Um, you know, they, they dislike Alex Salmond more than they dislike Nicola Sturgeon, but they are not convinced that she's been telling the full truth about what she knew and when she knew it about the the allegations um, uh, made against Salmon by a, a pair of, of, of civil servants. And it's that question of what she knew when the, that is actually at the core of the argument. You know, she says that she was not involved at all, that she knew nothing about it. There are a lot of people and so on who think that Nicola Sturgeon is a detail-oriented, control-minded, uh, control-freaky politician and they find it extremely difficult to believe that she's telling the truth about all of this but we will find out more by the end of the month because that's when two reports are, are due uh, the parliamentary committee's um, report which is likely to find significant failures in the civil service and then also a report by the Irish lawyer James Hamilton into whether or not Nicola Sturgeon broke the ministerial code now if she did that and if she did that by knowingly mi- misleading parliament then she's in a bit in a degree of difficulty because in theory technically that would be a resignation offense um, whether that would be true in this a- era of shame-free politics of course remains to be seen well that's it she can just say well that's the rule of great britain nobody resigns over everything so independence is over i'm staying in place just before we move on one last thing alex i mean a lot of 
yes voters and nationalists will have been dismissing you out of hand throughout this conversation. You know, Massey's a unionist, Massey's a big Tory. I did a little canvas on my Facebook page, asked all the Scots I knew, who's a good commentator on this? Instant argument. Nobody could agree. We get the impression in England that Scottish politics is far more rancorous even than in Britain, that there kind of can't be any kind of debate. You've got the Cybernats fighting away. Is it possible to give an accurate description of the Scottish, the temperature of the Scottish political culture at the moment. Is it as rancorous as it looks like from England? Yes, <laughs> I mean, it, it is, and always, uh, always has been. You know, um, you know, um, Scotland swings from extreme to extreme, and so on. You know, there is very little moderation or middle ground in Scottish politics. Um, uh, you know, that there are, you know, eighty percent of the electorate is fiercely partisan and that divides along you know on the national question first and foremost you know everybody pretends that we really ought to care about you know health education transport the economy and other important issues but fundamentally nobody actually really cares about those things to anything like the extent they care about independence or unionism you know that is the great dividing line um and the it means that that those voters who would like to talk about something else uh, are going to be disappointed once again because everybody likes the the familiar tunes of the constitutional question and there is very little compromise that is possible on the national question and um people are not interested in 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 compromise because remember you know the the golden rule of politics and so on is that while your victory is very pleasing it is nowhere near as satisfying as your opponent's defeat <laughs> Pretty much the only upside of lockdown was an immediate fall in carbon emissions, but it was a small and a temporary reduction. Do we need to start thinking of air pollution as a social, not just an environmental problem? Rosamund Adu Kissy Deborah's daughter, Ella Roberta, died in 2013 after exposure to what was described as excessive levels of pollution in the family home near the South Circular Road in Lewisham, London. Last year, Ella became the first person in the UK to have air pollution listed as a cause of death. Rosamund is now the director of the Ella Roberta Family Foundation and a WH show advocate for health and air quality. My name is Rosamund Adrukisi Deborah. I am the founder and executive director of the Ella Roberta Family Foundation and I am also the WHO advocate for health and air quality. Air pollution is a social problem because it's something that affects all of us. At the moment the latest data is it affects 94 percent of us in the UK. So therefore, it's something we all need to concern ourselves with. Initially, when COVID started, we didn't really link it to air pollution. But now looking at COVID deaths, COVID deaths seem to be higher in areas of high air pollution. Going back to a period during COVID when transport was down by 90%. Now, in reality, that's not going to be sustainable because the economy does need to open. I think my hope now is as the vaccine is rolled out, more people will have confidence and we will go back to public transport. During the first lockdown, no child in this country died from asthma during that period. And that's because the streets were deserted and that's the first time in a long time that has happened so that again reinforces the the fact that asthma deaths are really about emissions if the environment bill goes through parliament without who targets i believe it would have failed there needs to be so much more done like clean air zones i'm hoping with myself and my team what's going to happen is 
we are going to roll out Heller's Law. And that will be based on the experts who deal with emissions in this country and who know what needs to be done. The government was part of the inquest. They were an interested party. So they have already seen, from our point of view, what needs to be done. Later this year, WHO will be bringing in new targets. So the ones we're we're talking about, they are very old targets from 2005. WHO has realized the reason why they are bringing in new ones is they now accept that there is no such thing as a safe limit because still there are premature deaths of 7 million worldwide and that's why they believe believe there need to be stronger targets. So if the UK is struggling with implementing 2005 targets, when would we possibly implement those in 2021? And that's why I think we would need to look at those when it comes to Heller's law. If the government doesn't do it, then I'm afraid we're going to have to do it. So we've come to the end of this week's bunker. And as usual, we're going to ask the panel for their escape routes from politics, which we definitely need this week. What are the TV, films, books or whatever else that are clearing their minds and giving them mental space to keep on keeping on? Yasmin Sahan, how have you been escaping the world of politics this week? I don't know if this is an escape so much as torture, but I can't stop myself from like whenever I have a moment, just going back through my camera roll to what I was doing this time <laughs> last year. Um, I've just for some reason have found more than Netflix, more than books. I just like love watching the progression of like the pandemic go. So yeah, I'm just taking trips down memory, memory lane basically to when I went to the store and there was no pasta and then, you know, everything else that's happened since. There's a whole lot of like, this is the last time I went to see a band. This is the last time I, I managed to go to a restaurant. It's, I think somebody pointed out the other day that your one year ago reminders on Facebook are about to get incredibly dull. Or scarring. I mean, it really depends because I feel like it just totally takes you back to that mindset. I was like, oh, this is when I was watching Tiger King. Right. (laughs) Yes. Are you saying that you've been attacked by early pandemic nostalgia? In a weird way, it it was novel then at least. But yeah, no, I don't know if it's, I don't yearn to go back, but it is feeling like, oh, I've grown so much. Well, that is that is why they call it the novel coronavirus. Alex, how about you? How are you? What's your escape route from politics at the moment? Uh, well, the last few days I've been reading a new novel by uh, the writer Ewan Morrison uh, called "How to Survive Everything," which is perhaps <laughs> the most timely novel of the year because it is set five years in the future in a time of a future pandemic, vastly worse uh, than the current one, uh, and it's narrated by a teenage girl whose father is a prepper. Uh, and much of the uh, action obviously takes place actually in a bunker. And it is written with great wit and verve and humour and a lot, uh, massive amount of pathos as well. And it is very much a novel for our times. Uh, uh, and I, I heartily recommend it to everybody. I think I think everybody would enjoy it. Right it sounds now. fantastic. I'm not sure it's necessarily an escape route. It sounds like more an immersion route, but I'm well, going to let you have that one. It's a, it's a reminder that things could always be worse. <laughs> How very Scottish of you, Aisha. What's your escape route? Well, I have to say, I've got a lot of sympathy with what Yasmin's saying. I've been going back through my diary and I realised it's about a year to the day when I decided to watch Contagion, which was... (laughs) (laughs) 
get the feeling that people have misunderstood the question today. I know, I know. But thankfully, Matt Hancock also watched Contagion <laughs> and decided, thought, you know what? Those vaccines are quite important. I really need to get on those vaccines. So, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I have been so busy this week, um, particularly with all the Meghan and Harry stuff, mm. that I really haven't had much um, of a chance. I've been busy, like, kind of fighting with Good Morning Britain and Piers Morgan and uh, doing this. But what I have got a mental image in my head of is somebody put this into social media and it just made me laugh so much just to loop back to what we're talking about oprah interviewing alex salmon and nicola sturgeon and she goes to alex salmon were you silence or were you silent <laughs> that is the interview we all that's the follow-up interview we all need to see Absolutely, it's it's, it's got to happen. Well, well mine, I'm I'm really going to sort of like show my lowbrow um, affiliations here. Mine is just a new thing, Scott, starting on Sky this week. Um, a a comedy drama thriller called The Flight Attendant, which uh, stars Kaylee Cuoco from uh, well-known highbrow comedy The Big Bang Theory, um, and uh, she's got quite a sophisticated, clever, and really compelling comedy coming out. Effectively, the uh, the top line is she's a flight attendant. She lives the life of, of uh, international travel, hell of a lot of drinking, hell of a lot of partying, and then she wakes up with a dead guy in her bed, and it gets worse from there on in. And I was, the, the first 10 minutes of it, you think you're watching some terrible Sex in the City knockoff, and then it takes a swerve, and I can really recommend it. It's starting on Sky this week. And there's no um, pandemics prepping plagues of any kind in it whatsoever. So if you really, unless you want to take the recommendations of the rest of the panel, this is the one to take. And that is the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you, Aisha Hazarika. Thank you. Thank you, Yasmin Sohan. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being our special guest, Alex Massey. Please do come back. Uh, Thank you very much. I'd love to, obviously. Thanks. Excellent. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. So follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Don't forget the live Zoom with me, Yasmin, Arthur, and Ahir on Thursday the 25th of March, free to Patreon backers. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up and get access, plus early podcasts, merchandise, and all kinds of stuff. Patreon backers get a shout-out at the end of the show, and here are some now. And it's a big thanks from me to uh, Sean Barry Howard and Dr. Johan Waktari. Hello and best wishes from me to Tim Hughes, Andy Ball and Matt Sawyer. And finally, hello and big thanks from me to Liz Tollfree, Stuart Mangan and Chris Jobling. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Yasmin Saran and Aisha Hazarika. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>